Okay, open up your Bibles with me to the book of John chapter 4. Book of John chapter 4. We're going to talk about take him at his word. John chapter 4 verse 43 as you're going there if you want to share. Um, oh, my, the sound is coming from here. Where would that sound be coming from? Is it up on the, uh, the, the volume on that sidebar was up? Okay, let me just make sure that we're coming through because for some reason I don't always trust whether or not we're coming through, so we're going to share this. Um, Chiggity, check, check, check. Looks like we're coming through okay. Yep, coming through. Love it. Okay. Every week I tell myself, don't do this the way I do it because it's like a little ghetto at the beginning, but I don't know how else to do it without stopping. Join me for chapel. Okay. John chapter 4, verse 43 through 54. Would you give me the trackpad, please, and the uh, keyboard? Because I don't want to bring my laptop. I don't think I need it. Yesterday's message was not too proud to ask. Did you enjoy it? Amen. And today's message is going to be take him at his word. So let's go to John chapter 4, verse 43, starting uh, with uh, verse 43. After the two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own uh, hometown or country. Thank you. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had been there. Verse 46, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down to my, come down before my child dies. And then Jesus said in verse 50, go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Everybody say, the man took Jesus at his word. Amen. He took Jesus at his word and departed. Verse 51, while he was still on the way, his servants met with him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed this was the second sign performed uh, after coming from Judea to Galilee. Now, what's unique about this is that we see that there's a synoptic kind of issue here, or rather there is a uniqueness of John's story and a filling in of the synoptic, um, what's going on here, the synoptic gospels of this same kind of story, but they pick out a unique character. I know some of you heard what I was talking about in uh, the services yesterday, but let me just review it real quick. So the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are written probably from the same sources. Sometimes they call it source Q, an oral source that was around at the time. And then these different authors started writing down from the oral sources. Now we know Mark gets his information from Peter and Matthew was a disciple. So Peter and Matthew are matching each other very much the same like that. 
which makes it a little bit unique to how Luke got to match them so much. And Luke says he went out to get the stories himself to do research like a historian. So it's really cool to see that as he did his historical work, he came really in alignment on his own with Matthew and Mark, two eyewitnesses, you know, representations there, Mark representing Peter. And so if we take the basic chronology, chronological order of the, the Gospels, Mark or Matthew comes first, and then whatever one came first, like Mark came first, then came Matthew, and vice versa. Around, around uh, the same time, they're being written, and then Luke comes a little bit later, and then much later comes John. Now, when John is writing, he's writing 90% of new material, and most of the time what he is doing is sticking with his seven-sign um, motif. He's following uh, he's giving you a story to follow about Jesus where he's, certain, he's just picking out certain stories and he's saying, I want to highlight this one, I want to highlight this one, and I want to highlight this one to make my point at the end about who is Jesus. Well, the unique situation here that you find out when you look at the commentators is that there's two major situations that is happening in this passage that the synoptic gospels fill in and they also cause a little bit of not um, contradiction, but a question. And so the first thing is here, in John's writing, he says Jesus comes to his own home country and he tells them, the disciples, that a prophet's not welcome in his own hometown. But then in the very next verse, in verse 45, it says they welcomed him. So it almost seems like there's a contradiction. But once again, this is where the synoptic gospels fill in for us and are really kind of telling us what's happening here. He does go home. There is an initial welcoming, but then there is a problem because they want him to do more signs to keep proving himself like a magician. They want him to be like a Moses-like figure, a deliverer, maybe drown Pharaoh in the sea like how Moses did, maybe you know, call, call down fire to, to Rome or to the oppressors. And so they turn on him, and that's why he brings up this rebuke. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And so John is telling you, I'm talking talking about this same relative time that you have already seen in the synoptic gospels he is making sure that you know that it's around that same time and so when we when we look at these um th this story here and we look at this passage let's see if i can go to the uh esv let's go to the esv did the esv just disappear <laughs> it's one of those days with technology. Okay, yeah, it started off a little weird for you guys, didn't it? Okay, let's see here. Let's go back up here a little bit. Okay, let's see. John, no. Okay, I, I'm not going to get much help from this today because it's acting naughty. But um, above these passages, we see that he's telling us the story about the Samaritan woman, and so forth. And he doesn't count that as a sign. Uh, but he's going to count this as a sign. And the synoptic Gospels basically tell us that it's not a good time. It's not a good time. People are really starting to turn on him. And it's not just the, uh, the, 
the hierarchy of the Jewish people who are putting him on the spot. It's the everyday average person that actually doesn't like him either at this point because they were thinking like, man, you've already cleansed the temple. You've changed water into wine. Why aren't you just going to deliver us and make this thing happen now? Be our king. Be our leader and set us free. And then you have the Jews on top of that, which are basically like, you know, we don't understand you fulfilling the prophecies. You're supposed to come from Bethlehem. We know you come from Nazareth. You're, you're supposed to be a king-like figure, but you're just a carpenter. We know who your mother and father is. And so basically, it's almost like the pride of the lower middle class joins with the pride of the aristocrats. And together, they are both in pride, and they're both rejecting Jesus. And the Synoptic Gospels explain a little bit more about that. And uh, let's see here if I can get some help here. Yep, so Matthew chapter 13 and Luke chapter 4 tell the story in the uh, synoptics. And if we just go to Luke chapter 4 here, we can see um, that he starts to rebuke them. And all the people in the synagogue, uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this because he basically said to them, he said, and there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not many, not one of them was cleansed, only Nahum, the Syrian. So he's like, you guys are going to miss this. Just like how there was a lot of lepers in Israel and only Nahum, the Syrian, got, got healed. He said, that's the same way you guys are. And then it, it says right here, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill, uh, which, was on, which the town was built on, in order to throw him off a cliff. Does everybody see how bad it really got here? That's how bad it's getting there. And so that's, once again, the context here. Of, uh, of this story is what is going on is that it does turn that bad. Now, once again, John doesn't tell you all of that. John just puts in there, hey, Jesus said this before he came to his town, and it seems like it's going well, and then all of a sudden he starts rebuking them. So you got to understand where the synoptics place in that. Now, the second issue with this is, is that who is the royal official? Is the royal official the centurion that comes to Jesus in the synoptics. And we have come to the conclusion, and I say we like me and some of the other scholars, because there is a little bit of difference here, that it is a different man. And the reason why we don't believe it's the centurion is because he's called a Roman, uh, he's called a royal official, which would actually be a different position, even though some people can make a stretch there if you do some studying. But it's really just a different position. The royal official would speak for somebody working for Herod and the temple and the dynasty and the royalty and the royal family that was occupying the Galilean area and the Judean area at that time. Or, um, or, or and, and then the centurion is a Roman official working for the Roman government as a soldier, as a soldier, really, and, and not so much as an official, though I think they try to stretch that a little bit. But uh, royalty there and centurion would not match each other. You're not going to be royalty and necessarily a centurion at the same time, um, at least in my studies. And so... That's one major difference. And then the other difference is, is that in this story, the man himself comes, but in the other synoptic story, he sends an envoy to represent him. And this does kind of pose a little bit of an issue between the synoptics because one says that uh, 
he himself came, and another one said that the envoy came. So which one is it? But if you look at how in the ancient culture, if you send an envoy in your name, it counted for you. That would make sense. And so it wouldn't be contradicting. It's the voice of the uh, the representative speaking, but it's on behalf the words of the man. And they took that very literal. You would be uh, you would be able to operate in that person's name, very similar to like how you see in, in the 300, like when that guy comes, he is speaking for the king of Persia, if you remember that. And then the, the Spartans tell him, you know, what you say here, you will be held accountable for. You know, I don't know the exact words, but do you remember the exact words? But it's something really cool. And he's like, watch your words, you know, Persian. And then he still goes off and says the thing, and he goes, you know, what is this madness? This is, is, boom, and then kicks him down. <laughs> Don't mess with Spartans. So that's the, the, the background here. So it, it's, it's really, why does John leave out all the drama? That's a question. The synoptics fill it in. But why does he leave it out? Probably wasn't that important to him here. And, and we know that they're being led of this Holy Spirit. So when we talk about what they do, we're really meaning what God is using them to do. And then the second thing is, is it a different person or is it the same person? And I come to the conclusion that it is a different person. Now, for our sake today, let's not get caught up in the details of the story because we've gone over that. Just wanted to review. Let's go back to what it had, uh, what, what it said here about taking him at his word. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And so this took trust on behalf of this man. This man more than likely had nothing to do with the rebuke. He definitely wasn't in the synagogue when they wanted to try to kill him. But yet he gets the rebuke with everybody else. He doesn't let it deter him. He didn't come there for God to prove something. He came for God to do something. His heart was hungry. He came with that real faith. And when Jesus spoke to him, Jesus said, you can go now because it's already taken care of. And he took Jesus at his word. He didn't argue. He didn't say, hey, I don't know if I can trust you on this. I don't want to look dumb when I head back and they're already burying my son. He took Jesus at his word. So this shows us that this was a man of faith. And what we talked about last week is that him being a royal official really shows us that it was his humility that granted the miracle. It was his willingness to humble himself and ask God to bless him. And that's what I wanted to talk about last, uh, yesterday rather, which is talking about you and I not being too proud to ask Jesus to do things in our life. No matter how great I become as a pastor, no matter how much royalty I get in the ministry world, I never want to be too proud to ask Jesus to do a miracle. And no matter how smart you are, no matter how many good grades you get, no matter all the accolades you get from men, never be too proud to ask Jesus to do a miracle. And then this is where I want to uh, put it for you guys today in Bible college here for the next few minutes is that are you willing to take Jesus at his word? There's a promise that comes in verse 50, go, your son will live. There's a journey that takes place in verse 51. And then in verse 52, we see that he, the boy, is healed. So what should we do? Between verses 50, the promise, and verses uh, 52 and onward, where the promise is given, we need to take him at his word. That's exactly what we need to do. We need to take Jesus at his word. While he was still on the way, his servants met with him and the news that his boy uh, and met him with the news that the boy was living. 
So the miracle happened in a certain, at a certain time, but the man had not yet received the confirmation yet. He had not yet seen the miracle. He had to trust God. Now let me just say this because I didn't get a time to do it in the, um, the, the services yesterday, that when you're preaching a passage like this, it can get real easy to just hoop and holler about believing God to do miracles even though you don't see it. But there is a technical issue here that I want you to see how I worked in the message or worked around it but worked into the message a real doctrine about God and time. So when we look at this, um, this miracle, let's say it's 1 p.m. on a Monday. Jesus says the boy is healed. The man leaves, takes Jesus at his word, meets the servants, and they confirm that the man, uh, that the boy rather, was healed at 1 p.m. Now, if you just start whooping and hollering this, what it almost sounds like when, if we would do this wrong is that Jesus said the boy was healed at this moment, but he didn't actually get healed until, and he said that, like say, at 1 p.m., but he doesn't actually get healed until 3 p.m. when the man sees it. Now, do you understand where I'm going with this? If not, I'm going to repeat it because... If you're whooping and hollering saying, you haven't seen your miracle yet. You just keep on believing God. God said it. It's done. Take him at his word. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And you're preaching it like that. But there is now an issue. If, let's say we're praying for you to get a million dollars. Just make it real clear, like an obvious. Pray to get a million dollars. If you're saying this story applies to you, when you say the promise is yours and you believe it, then that would mean at that exact time, not at a later time, the million was literally yours. Because the boy was literally healed at 1 p.m., not 3 p.m. Do you understand the difference? And so that's where you got to make sure you don't let the preaching get away from the doctrine of the actual teaching. There's the teaching and then there's the preaching. And that means that you have to go line upon line. And so what did I do to not work around it, but I would say work into this a lesson about God and time? Does anybody remember what I was saying before I went on my preaching track? Go ahead, sir. Yes. Amen. There you go. So to work into there, not work around it just for the sake of preaching, but I was compelled to work into there, and I have scriptures to show it to you, and I'll, I'll give you a few, uh, is that God encompasses all time, past, present, and future. So to us, the story may not relate on this kind of a timeline, but we could still get excited and whoop and holler about this because in God's time, it's all accomplished anyways. Do you guys get that? It's already accomplished anyways. Okay? Let me give you a few scriptures to help you understand that. And there's still some good practical application we need to understand there. But I just thought it was something that I wanted to work in and I felt like it was helpful. And it also, I also believe it kept me on track. The Bible says that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. Look at how the redemption of God is presented 
or excuse me, uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So when was the Lamb slain according to this passage? When was he slain? From the creation or the foundation of the world. When did it happen in our time? About 2,000 years ago, right? It's like 3, BC, uh, 3 A.D. That's when it happened. In our time. In God's time, when did it happen? From creation. Do you see that right there? Let's go here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. I will bring my laptop next time. That is too small for me to see over there. I got some new glasses, but these spectacles ain't helping me get there. Okay. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So he was chosen from the foundation of the world, but was revealed, revealed at these times. And so what can I say here in this time thing? We are chosen for the miracle here, but it's revealed here. Do you get how I did it? Now, once again, if you're not really paying attention, you think I'm whooping and hollering like everybody else. But I had to, for the thinking mind and to be sound in the doctrine, make sure that I explained where my time scale was coming from. Let me work on this just a few more moments, just so you could see how time works with God. One of my favorite um, philosophers and theologians has written a book on time, uh, William Lane Craig, and it's so deep, and I just haven't had the time to read it, you know. <laughs> But uh, it is a deep book, man, because it's like you got to have the time to read it yet. But it's, it's a deep thing, man. And, and it's just when you start thinking about time and how it works, and now they, they've combined space-time together. So it used to be matter, space, and time. Now it's matter, space, time. So it's matter, space, time that makes up the universe. And it's just so deep. It's well beyond where I can have time to study. I just don't have the time to go there. I think a lot of us, if we had the time, we could give our mind to it. It's not that you can't understand those things. It's just you have to read slow. Skimming is not going to work. And you've got to do it over and over again until you get it. And it's always uh, going to be challenging because there's a lot of theory that hasn't been proven yet. There's just a lot of speculation about what different kinds of time there are. There's the B theory of time. There's the A theory of time. And like I said, there's just a lot of speculation on how time works. Now watch this again, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, God and time here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So when did I get every blessing in Christ? When I was born again. It doesn't say it right here, but how many know when that happened? When I came into Christ, right? When I accepted Christ. But now look at what it says. For he chose us in him before the foundation, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless, etc., etc. So before, in one sense, the creation of the world, I was already saved and given everything I ever needed. Because God knew at some point I would be saved. So when I got saved... He didn't go back in time and then make it all happen so that it would be ready for me. When I got saved, it was already ready for me. You see how that just blows your mind right there? 
So in God's mind, I was always saved. In God's mind, I was always uh, given every blessing because I was chosen. I was chosen. Now, this is where you get into the discussion of Calvinism, Arminianism, and that's why when it comes to this specific doctrine of predestination, I go with Molinism, which takes the both of them and combines them together. That there is no accidents with God. Everything is pre-planned and foreordained. But yet it includes our free will, decisions, and choices. The Calvinist makes a strong case, uh, I mean, uh, believes in a strong predestination where everything happens the way it does because God controls the wills. He's just moving everything exactly the way he wants, like he's playing chess with himself. The Arminian believes that God has simple foreknowledge, that God takes on information based on uh, what we're going to do and then applies his uh, moves accordingly, which in some ways I do agree with. But I think Molinism is better because Molinism doesn't say God just leaves it to our chance and then reacts to it. Molinism says God works his plan out exactly the way he wants it, but he never hinders our free will in the, in, in, in the plan. So he knew Peter would betray him. That was the plan. He wanted that to be the plan. That, that Peter would be able to do that. He chose that like, I'm, I'm going to let Peter betray me. That's going to be my plan. Not that I want the actual action, but for this to go down a certain way, someone will have to betray me. Peter will freely choose to betray me. So he sets it up. But Peter, in the moment, does it all by himself, by his free will. He, does, he cannot blame God and say, you made me betray you. You made me betray you. No, he didn't make him betray him. He just knew that he would betray him given those certain circumstances. And that's what's called middle knowledge, that if you're in a certain circumstance, God knows whether or not you will choose A or B, you know, whether you're going this direction or that direction. So anyways, we see here that God's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Now, this really applies to our message as well. Before creation, I was given all of this. When did it become knowledgeable to me that this was true? Well, when I became saved. Well, now, have I seen every spiritual blessing come to me yet? No, but according to God, is it already mine? Yes, it is. Is it already mine? Yes, it is. Those he predestined for adoption in, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and well, will. Now, keep going to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of his sins, in accordance with the richness of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will. He put these things into effect when the times reached their fulfillment. Now, watch this. In verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Does everybody see that? Amen. Now, let's consider what God has promised you. Let's consider this. What has God promised you that you need to take him at his word? What are things right now that you find yourself believing God for, that you believe he promised here? We'll call this P, the time of promise. We'll call this F, the time of fulfillment. We'll call this time in the middle, J, the time of journey. What God has said he will do. He's not a man that he should lie. So what are the things that you are taking him at his word for? Now let me share with you some of the things that I take him at his word for. Well, 
There was a time when I was unmarried, so I had to take God at his word for marriage. Now, according to God, did I already have a wife? Yes, I did. He didn't create a wife the day I got married or the day I met her. According to God, I already had a wife. In God's past, present, and future outlook of time. And remember, we look at time like this, how I'm drawing a timeline. We look at it linearly. But God looks at time as a circle. Past, present, and future are all in there at once. He never arrives anywhere. He's already there. He never has to go back somewhere. He's already there. He never... In one sense, it leaves the past, future, or the present. He is occupying all that time is. Let's say this is space-time. This is all matter and all space-time. Here is our big God encompassing it all as a big G for God, encompassing it all. He encompasses all of time. This is where you get into the idea like, can you time travel? Does the past actually exist? And different things like that, you know. And so there's, like I said, there's a lot of theories like that. But whatever we're going to do, we can definitely trust this. That he's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He was, is, and shall always be. He is the great I am that I am. The self-existing one encompassing all matter, all space, all time. So what are some promises for you? For me, it was marriage. And I had to trust God for 10 years as a Christian for the blessings that he had already given me since the creation of the world. I had to believe him. I had to go on this journey with him and take him at his word. And then sure enough, boom, June 19th, 2005. I do. I do. Y'all get it on. We will. I will. You know, it's like, boom, there it is. Bam. That's how it happens. And then you could put down here a lot of other things in my life. Uh, Say the Bible college. I've always had in my heart to have a Bible college. I had two master's commissions, one at North, um, excuse me, in New Orleans, and then one at Belmont. And master's commissions were just a couple-year program that would do not accredited work but certificate-level work. And the students would do more traveling. It was more ministry, mentoring-based. And they would, you know, stay in a host home. They didn't want you dating and all of these things. And it was fun, but I always knew, like, I went to Bible college. I went to a place that really impacted me with knowledge. I went to these Mardi Gras, you know, and this is what I want people to do. I want to see God raise this up. Well, there was a time from the promise God had already had this plan. And I could even go one step further. What if, how about this? This is deep right here. What if all the things we're desiring are the things he wants to give us, and that's why he puts them as desires? Isn't that awesome? That just came to me right there. But I know it's been said before, but it just it fits into this, doesn't it? It's like, what if the desires are being birthed there? Because he already knows what he wants to give us. And he goes, I want to give you this. Let me give you the desire for it. And so sometimes we're like all shy about it. You know, we're shy. We're like, maybe I'm just making this up. Maybe maybe 100000 was just something I made up so I could be really cool. And what if God's saying, no, I'm the one that put that in your heart all along because I know what it looks like right here. I know what it looks like. I already see you on the stage. I already see Sister Soldier planting 20 of them churches. You know, I already see I already see the nations. I already see it all, so I'm going to put it in your heart right here. It's like as if the future you coming back to talk to the present you going, you can do all this stuff, start to believe it. And that's literally what God is doing. God is coming from the future into our present going, I already know what's there. Let me put it in your heart so you start going towards this. And that's not even spooky or superstitious. That's, that's encompassed when we say he is the author and the what? The finisher of our faith. Look at that passage as I just sense the Lord on that. Y'all sensing Jesus? 
Isn't that encouraging when you hear things like this? Hebrews chapter 12 says, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses in verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders and so easily entangles. And let us run with a perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He pioneered it and he perfected it. And if you go back uh, here to the NIV, you know what, I won't go there, but uh, it says the, the author and finisher in that version. Matter of fact, I will. I'll just put it in there. I just didn't want to lose my place, but. Yeah, consider, let me see, verse 2, a pint, oh, I was in the NIV? Oh, okay, well, let me go to the King James then. Let me go here to the King James. Thank you. Author and finisher. Boom. He already knows the end from the beginning, and he's come from the end to tell us at the beginning of our journey what to believe him for. He's like, come on, I double-dog dare you to believe me for you, Christian, to do all this stuff with the Spanish community. I double-dog dare you to believe me because I already see it done right here. I already see you making it through this trial. I already see you making it through this situation. Just trust me. And that's where the old-timers used to say, he didn't bring me this far to leave me now. He didn't bring me this far to leave me now because he knows the end already. So why would he put all this in my heart and give me all this hope to leave me here now? And God isn't a God that lies. He's not a man that he should lie so we can trust him. Amen. So the 100,000 has been a great thing. You know, marriage and family and ministry are the biggest things in my life. And, and then there's like those specific things that, that happen in, in those areas that I've had to believe God for. So like marriage and family, one of the things was um, I wanted to raise my children with a backyard and homeschool and really make the home like their vacation. I knew that being a pastor, you don't have a lot of money. But I looked at some of the pastors, like a brother Anthony, who lived a little bit out, out of the city, who could have a little bit more land, homeschool their children, and in Enable that to be like a sanctuary of rest and then encounter the ministry of the city. And I know that, that, that there's times that I actually made fun of them and put them down for being, you know, suburban pastors in the city. And I said, y'all sissies, I live in the city. I work in the city. I die in the city. I get my car stolen in the city. I get carjacked in the city. I get pimp slapped in the city. So y'all ain't suffering like me. But then I began to realize, like, for me, like, that was a dream too then. It started to make sense. Now, I don't want all of us moving out the city. Don't do it just because I did it. Do whatever God put puts it in your heart to do, but I love both. I love I love being in the suburbs, having all that space with my kids, paying less for more, and then I love coming into the city, having all that congestion, all the people. I can go witnessing at Wright College. I can go into this shady corner store that I just went to, and it's just like, okay, I got I got Old Faithful on me. Okay, I'm good. Where am I at right now? It, you know, you go to open the thing. It's already busted off, and they got tape around the two things. There's not even a handle there. It's just tape. You kind of pull the thing. It's just ghetto, you know, and it's just like, okay, I'm in, I'm in the city, man baby. I'm in the city. I, I can handle both. I, I can handle both. But then guess what? There's a journey, and this is another way of looking at journey. There's a journey from the suburbs to the city every day, and I get to pray and meditate on God's Word, so I use that for my benefit. But anyways, I wanted to have, uh, and you can have that in the city too, like like Ricky Rivera and other people in our church have good homes and, 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 and yards and all of that. And uh, what I would like to do is believe God to get a house like an old Irving Park. You know, that, that's that got some big houses and big yards right there. But they about a couple milli up in there. But it ain't no thing to Jesus. Maybe there's a promise for me. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Come on. So, you know, maybe there will be a trek back into the city with some zeros behind uh, the, the house that I live in. You know, I'll receive it, Jesus. I won't fight against it. You know. And But here's the thing. 
I said, I don't want to have any children until I have a house and space and homeschool and all this. And I remember Tisa and Jean, who are missionaries that we support in South Africa at that time. They were in Mozambique working with Iris, uh, I, Iris Ministries. And they're still with uh, Heidi Baker. That's Iris Ministries. But now they're in South Africa. This is what she said to me. Thus as the Lord, a woman of God prophesied to me. She said, the same way. You took a step of faith to plant a church, and there was nothing there. You've got to take a step of faith and plant your family, and God will provide for your family as you take those steps of faith. And I began to, to think about that over the years, and God kept his word through that uh, because the Bible has in other places, the scriptures, you know, he who uh, finds a wife finds a good thing and, and, and gets favor from the Lord and all of that. You know, and it's like, yes, when you do the right thing, especially in the family, that like you find that favor. Well, we then started to have a child to make babies, you know, while we lived in that little old apartment. And by the time we, she was pregnant, ready to have the baby, we were in the, uh, what ended up being the boys' dorms, like a three-bedroom uh, townhouse. It was in the hood, but it was nice, and it was all good. And then from there, we got to go to another house. And I've always seen that God gives us what we need when we need it. And that was just something that was small about the family. But I had to take that journey there. And then, like, the same thing in ministry with Bible college and the, and the other things is that I have seen God keep his word on the journey. Now, the question is, why is there a journey, right? I think that always comes into our mind. Why has there got to be a journey? Why has there got to be, you know, mountaintops and valleys, mountaintops, valleys? Why has there got to be scary times, dark, shadowy times in there? And I believe that the journey is for us to get to know him. That's what I personally believe. I personally believe that he is not a God that hides himself from us like the song says. You don't hide yourself to tease us. You're, you're, you're not mad at us. You're not doing this stuff because you don't like us. You are working in a broken, fallen, the Lord is working in a broken, fallen world to show us who he is. He's showing us to be the shepherd in our scary times. Like if I never went through that scary time, I would never know the shepherd who puts me in his arms with his rod and staff. If you've never been through the valley of the shadow of death, you've never had the chance for him to hold you like that. So many of us who have gone through hard times, I think we need to you know, rest in God's plan for our life and say, it's not that, that God enjoys the pain that he sees us in, but he allows this pain of this fallen world to, to come in our, in our lives and us to go through it so that we can get to know him more. There is a lesson, let's put it this way, there is a lesson that God teaches us about himself in the shadow land. In the Shadowlands, as um, one, um, I believe it was C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien used to talk about, I think it was C.S. Lewis, in the Shadowlands of pain and hurt, we get to see God in new ways. And this is what God does through us. And as you look at your tests, they become your testimonies. As you look at your battles, they become your victories. And so I don't want you guys to get discouraged in Bible college on your journey. The Lord put you here and promised that you would finish, that you would graduate, that you would do all these awesome things for him. Don't give up in the middle of the journey. Stay true to the course that God has called you to do. And watch these things start coming to pass and know that he always keeps his word. There have been times where I thought it was God. And when it didn't come, I can tell you, I honestly could tell you that I knew that I had missed God. And so you might say, well, Pastor, what about the times where it just doesn't happen? Like, you know, it's kind of like impossible for it to come back, you know. So, for example, we go to a building over there, and I say it's God, and we're going to go do our best, and we're going to rent that space and do all that. 
but the bills don't get paid. It doesn't work out. We have to shut down the building. We have to shut down the church, restart the church, etc. Well, at that point, I could just play make-believe and say, well, it was really God's plan for all that to happen just the way it did, and, and, you know, and that's the way it was supposed to be. Or I could say I miss God, and God used that because he knew it would happen, but he used me missing him as still a part of the plan, not that it was his intention that I walk around missing him, but he allows us to miss him. Do you understand the difference? One says God, God goes, I want to deceive you and have you miss me and go through a lot of pain. Another one says, I've given you free will to develop a relationship with me, and I know sometimes you'll miss me. I'll allow some of those times to happen so that you'll grow closer to me in the process because those good things, all those things will work for my glory. And so I can look back at that and go, what happened? Oh, I miss God. Now, that's the truth. I miss God. But how does missing God work for my good when I'm doing the thing right with a pure heart seeking the Lord? Well, I learn lessons on how to hear from God next time. And I remember talking to one pastor, and I was so embarrassed. I was like, yeah, we got to shut it down. We're not doing it. And he said, you know what? You just took a, 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 a two-year or two-year um, a class, how did he say, he said you took like a two-semester uh, class of God in ministry where he teaches you not how to miss his voice anymore. Uh, Holy Ghost Seminary is what I think he called it. It was Pastor Ron Allen. He said, you just took some semesters in the Holy Ghost Seminary. And then, know it can kind of sound cheesy, but it was real to me because it was like, yeah, I just learned things here I never would have learned. It's like Peter walking on water. Unless he got out the water, he would never learn how to trust God in that way. Now, it was never God's intention, like, I want you to fall. I want you to get scared and fall. But he knew at some point it would test his faith in a way that would make him fall. And that, and that would teach him more than it's just him staying in the boat. Because when you get out the boat and you start walking with God in faith, you are susceptible now to a, to a defeat or to a mistake or to something going wrong. But at least when you learn it in that context, it will help you in the future. Does everybody get that? So even our failures or things that don't come to pass in the midst of our journey, we still can see it's working towards the goal that God truly has for us, His will. Let's put it like this. Nothing that God has promised according to his will will fail to be done. There may be things we thought were according to his will that, we're, that we wanted to be done. And they may not be done, but even then we'll learn lessons so that we can accomplish the other things that are actually according to his will. Does that make sense? Look at that building example again. I think it's God for us to go to this building. We go to the building. We lose it. I think it's God to go to Wicker Park. We go to Wicker Park. We lose it. But what happened in the midst there? People get saved. Lives get changed. I learn concepts about church planning that will now be a part of the next 50 years of my life. So we'll never repeat those mistakes again according to his will. Amen? So think of it like that when you're on your journey. I'm taking God at his word. He's the author and finisher of my faith. I won't give up because he's not giving up on me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much today, and we honor you for what you do in our lives. We ask today, God, that whatever we're going through on the journey, that we would look back at the promise and take you at your word today because you are faithful. And, Lord, as we are faithful to you, you will keep your word to us. In Jesus' name. And everybody said.